Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to talk with you and explore with you tonight uh, the topic as practice as a path to happiness. What's that? This might seem obvious to some of you, and it might seem uh, like um, mm, uh, an elusive, mysterious um, idea for others of you, but I think it's really important to explore and underscore the value of joy and of happiness as aids to our path, to our development, to our unfolding, and also as um, the natural byproduct of all the sincere work that we do as we practice. Sometimes um, there's so much of an emphasis on suffering and the end of suffering that happiness kind of doesn't get as much airtime. And when the Buddha was asked what he taught, he said, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. Now, obviously, if you take one step further, you realize, and he said, realize it as deeply as you can, what the end of suffering is. It's a mind and a heart that's free, that is unencumbered by fear or contraction or confusion, what's sometimes called the sure heart's release. And in fact, he said, if you go for that, he called that the highest happiness. He said, there is no higher happiness than peace. And he said, if you go for the highest happiness and you're very sincere in your intention and in your, um, your work, that all the other happinesses come. He didn't say enjoying the fruits and all the, the joys and the happinesses that come is a no-no. In fact, sometimes it gets lost. He said, yes, there is happiness in life and we can appreciate and delight in it. He was sometimes called the happy one, as a matter of fact. If you are familiar with the Dalai Lama's book, uh, The Art of Happiness, the first line in the book is, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's a great way to start a book, isn't it? Oh, I'll read that. Okay. The purpose of life is to be happy. Sometimes as we get very committed and very um, serious about our practice, that seriousness can tip overboard and we might have an idea that this is about getting very serious. 
and it can turn into a somberness or a grimness. Um, the, the value of equanimity is extolled. And equanimity is actually the, just the, the antecedent to the deepest awakening when the mind is not ruffled by anything. But there can be a kind of false equanimity where we bypass our joys as well as our sorrows and take a, a, a stance of, oh yes, now I'm a Buddhist, I should be entering into void and not feeling anything. Oh my goodness, I've got all these emotions. Now come on and be a good Buddhist. And, and the Dharma is more than, uh, than just trying to be equanimous. It's to be everything. There are, as is often said, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. They all make up the fabric of life. And in our, sometimes, in our attempt to not be attached to the pleasures in life, we can distance ourselves from the joys of life. And if we do that, we cut off the spaciousness, the delight, the openness to life that allows us to feel all the sorrows and process them wisely. I want to read to you a, a passage that I, I love from Ajahn Sumedho, who uh, probably a number of you know, um, who comes here and teaches. He was, um, he was a mentor, actually, to Jack Cornfield when he first went to Thailand. He was the first Westerner um, who studied with Ajahn Chah and was in his, his main Dharma heir. And he um, is, uh, is the abbot of Amaravati, who's, uh, and also that's in England, and Abhayagiri Monastery run by Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano are part of his, um, his larger community. Anyway, he's a, a fabulous teacher, very wise, and also um, a very Um, spacious perspective. And this is what he says. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, Theravada is the kind of practice and teachings that Spirit Rock is is, uh, is the lineage most connected with and taught here at Spirit Rock. The way of the elders, I'm sure Jack has talked about it many times. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. This is a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, that is, impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness of life, and the selfless nature of the process. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of mudita, mudita, which is another name for joy or sympathetic joy, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty 
of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. Once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. It's nice to hear it from a highly respected Theravadan monk. It's okay to let yourself delight in the goodness of things. There are certain teachings that uh, sometimes can be misunderstood that um, can have us get confused around this aspect. There, at some point in practice, there are deep understandings that what we thought was going to bring us happiness is not where it truly can be found. That the next sense experience or the next um, uh, feeling of fleeting pleasure that we look outside for is, uh, is just that, fleeting. And there's a kind of waking up to the futility of finding our happiness in the things that we've normally been told will bring it to us. And the, the name of this understanding, which can sometimes be very profound, is uh, called Samvega. And this is the definition of Samvega from the, uh, the Access to Insight um, website. If, you, uh, if you're looking for... Um, the traditional teachings, there's a great website, accesstoinsight.org, and this is from the uh, Pali English Dictionary, Samvega, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived a chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly, and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaninglessness of the cycle. Now, when you hear that, I don't know what your response is when you hear that. There are different levels that you can hear that. And if you hear it with the deepest understanding of wisdom, it's absolutely so and important to see that happiness is not, the true happiness is not to be found out there in grasping at another sight, sound, smell, taste, or touch. But on another level, it can easily be misinterpreted when you hear the, the phrase or somehow get the, get the message, the futility and meaninglessness of life, an anxious sense of urgency to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. And one can interpret that means, oh, I better get out of here 
this is this is some place I've got to escape from as quick as possible. That is a misunderstanding because what we do with that attitude is think that the suffering is out there. Oh, this plane is just filled with suffering. And it's true, there's a lot of suffering. All you have to do is pick up the newspaper or when you look for it, you'll find it everywhere. But there's also a lot of goodness and beauty and joy. The suffering isn't out there. The suffering is in here. But there can be a misunderstanding in, in that subtle um, interpretation that thinks, oh, that's, this is bad out here. Let's get out of here. And that does yourself a great disservice because then we contract from, from life or when there is something sweet and, uh, and um, delicious and uplifting, there can be this sense, oh, don't get attached. It'll just be suffering. And I know that what that's like because I myself um, went through a period in my own practice where I was stuck in this misinterpretation of some vega for some time. And it was painful because part of who I am, a, a big part of who I am, is delighting in life, is celebrating life is seeing the beauty and the good, as Ajahn Sumedho says. And for a while I struggled in saying, well, do I have to give that up to be a real Buddhist? Or is this path not for me? And at one point the the Buddha took on this appearance or aura of a like a stern taskmaster that was saying, in my mind, don't have fun. Now the Buddha, who was such an inspiring figure to me in my early days of practice, he, he didn't change. Nothing happened to him. But my relationship changed because of what I misunderstood as being a good Buddhist. And not even intellectually. It was much deeper than that. It was on a visceral level. There's a, another teaching called um, uh, Nibbida, which is, um, is often... There's lots of different translations, and so you have to kind of check out the different translations. One um, definition of Nibbida... Mm, this is from uh, an old uh, translation. Um, Therefore, one should abide in the utter disgust for the aggregates, for this who we think we are. Or another translation, when a bhikkhu, a practitioner, is practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, he should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. Now, what does that mean? Oh, <laughs> It's kind of hard to get some good self-esteem going when you know, there's utter disgust or revulsion how you're supposed to relate to this body-mind process. But a deeper meaning of nibbida 
is disenchantment. Disenchantment with the all the 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 appearances, the form, the world of form and appearances. And again, that word disenchantment can have lots of different interpretations, but the deepest meaning of disenchantment is not being enchanted. Or another way to say it is breaking the spell of enchantment that we think, oh yes, this is going to do it for me. You see somebody beautiful walk by, oh yes, that will make me happy. Or whatever it is, you can fill in the blank, this will make me happy. And when you have a deep realization, you see, oh, I was just under a trance. I was just under a spell thinking, that's going to do it. When you break the spell, then there's a possibility of not being entranced or enthralled, but just enjoying, as Ajahn Sumedho says, the beauty of the good, the beauty of, of the truth, and the beauty of beauty, just on an aesthetic, aesthetic um, it's, a, it's a close but uh, big difference, uh, the aesthetic appreciation of all the, the blessings in life. The Buddha, I want to share with you some aspects of the Buddha's teachings that can point to seeing and cultivating this connection and appreciation for life. So you don't get trapped in a misinterpretation of Samvega and see that this is a path that cultivates happiness and joy. There's one um, one sutta where the Buddha talks about different equipments of mind, like your toolkit for um, for the highest peace and happiness. And there's a number of these equipments of mind. It's in the Majjhima number 99. If you're curious to to look it up, if that's your thing. And he says one equipment of mind is um, generosity. He says. As you're in the middle of a generous act, one should think, oh, I'm being generous. And as you think that, as you're in the middle of it, he says, it gladdens the heart, it delights the heart, it gain, you, one gains inspiration in the meaning and inspiration in, in the Dharma. Now, he's not saying, oh, You should go, hey, I'm a pretty generous guy. That just puffs you up with more conceit. But he's saying, feel how good it is while you're in the middle of a spontaneous, authentic act of generosity. You feel the wholesomeness of it as it moves through you. It feels really good. And he says, this is the next line, that gladness connected with the wholesome I call an equipment of mind that gladness connected with the wholesome, with what is skillful, with what is good, I call an equipment of mind. And he's saying, cultivate that gladness. And in fact, in the 
the classical definition of right effort, I'm sure you've heard the term right effort, there are four aspects to right effort. Two that have to do with unwholesome, that is, guarding against unwholesome states that haven't yet arisen. Don't put yourself in temptation's way. Abandoning unwholesome states that haven't yet Oh, sorry. Abandoning wholesome, unwholesome states that have arisen. So if you find yourself caught in grasping or in anger or in self-judgment or whatever it is, you can use your mindfulness practice to see the emptiness of it and not get caught in believing the story. And there are lots of other ways to abandon the unwholesome. Lots of practices. Then the other two aspects of right effort are developing wholesome states that haven't yet arisen, like doing loving-kindness practice, or generosity practice, or um, compassion practice, or um, um, lots of mindfulness practice, lots of different kinds, equanimity practice. And then you can cultivate these states And then the fourth aspect of the right effort is maintaining and increasing wholesome states that have arisen. Now, what do you think is the best way to maintain a wholesome state or increase it when it's here? Anybody have a guess? Say again. Acknowledge it. Okay, be grateful for it. What else? Feel it. it. Be really present for it. Don't miss it. Don't get into a a thing, oh, I'll just get attached, so I better, you know, just let this one pass by. I know it's going to pass. (laughs) Like he says, you know, it'll go into a rotting rotting flower in a moment. Don't miss it. Let yourself feel it. Be very present for it. Feel how good it feels when you are about to do a random act of kindness or are in the middle of it. Or when you find yourself somehow equanimous and not sucked into your story for the 73rd time. Oh, wow. It didn't stick. Let yourself feel how good that feels. You don't have to take ownership of it. You don't have to say, hey, pretty cool. I think I finally got it. Because watch out. As soon as you do, the universe has a way of just coming over and bopping you on uh, on the head and saying, oh, yeah, you think you got it? Well, try this one on for size. But just feel the goodness. Oh, yes, it's actually possible to be spacious and not get caught. Oh, what a blessing. And have gratitude and feel it. Besides maintaining and increasing the wholesome when it's here, one can incline the mind towards looking for it, towards exploring it. There's this notion of inclining the mind that I find so powerful in the Buddha's teachings. In in one discourse, he says, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. 
pretty straightforward, isn't it? But within that understanding is all of practice. Whatever we think, frequently think and ponder upon, that will be the inclination of our mind. And for many of us, the way it is, we have practiced well the habit of frequently thinking and pondering upon how things aren't going to work out, how I'm not good enough, how they've disappointed me, how I need that to be happy and I know I won't have it. And when that becomes your frequent pondering, then little by little it turns into your default setting in the mind. And so a big part of practice, and that word practice is the operational word, is more and more seeing through that and shifting, changing your default setting to see things in a way that awakens you from that confusion and also one can cultivate, actively cultivate happiness and joy. One of the things that I've, I've been exploring, researching joy in the last few, uh, last couple of years, joy and happiness, um, and I found that one can change the default setting. Uh, last year I did a series of, of joy groups, and uh, I think I'll be doing another one uh, sometime in the, in the, in the next, uh, sometime in the next year. Uh, where we took about 40 people and we said, okay, well, you can cultivate mindfulness, you can cultivate compassion, why not cultivate joy? And we did practices once, uh, once a month we'd meet and we had buddies and we had groups that came to, together uh, each, and practices for the month. And it was amazing. I, I didn't bring some of the, 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 uh, the testimonies here, but... People saying a lot of there were a lot of aversive types who signed up saying yeah well show me and or I really want it but I don't believe it it's possible and little by little seeing it actually is possible it takes intention it takes effort willingness to practice and it takes support is very helpful but it is possible to start to look for all the goodness in life. And I am a a firm believer in looking for the good because the more you look for it, guess what? You're going to find it. You will have corroboration for your theory on life. And if you think how everybody around you is a jerk, no problem corroborating that. And in fact, if we're around somebody who has that perspective and that's what you sense they're looking at when they see you, how do you feel? Like a jerk, right? (laughs) Or at least vulnerable and seen. If somebody sees all of your flaws or how you blow it, how do you feel inside? Yucky, isn't it? Somebody 
comes along and sees all your goodness. They might know all of your flaws, but they see your goodness. And they see right there, beyond all the, the foibles, to that place where there's a Buddha right inside. How do you feel? Buddhaful, aren't you? <laughs> you feel beautiful, don't you? That's why people love being around somebody like the Dalai Lama. He sees that you're a Buddha and you start feeling like it. Hey, maybe I am a Buddha, huh? Well, if you think of that in terms of that, then think of how much effect you have on your world around you. It's not only that you're... It's not to look through rose-colored glasses and see, oh, yes, everybody is so sweet. You know, you want to be, you know, know your zip code and, and, uh, and, and, and know where you're at and not be so naive. But beyond that place of fear and confusion, if you look for that place inside of all of us that wants to be happy, that wants to feel safe, that wants to be loved, that wants to love, we're not very different we just get confused with fear and uh, our conditioning and contraction. And the power that we have to bring that out in others is enormous. So what you look for, you'll not only start to see, but you'll actually draw out of others around you. And I, I've taken this as a practice for many years because one of my main connections is... Um, Dharma Inspirations is uh, Neem Karoli Baba from uh, the book Be Here Now and Ram Dass's books. That was my early introduction to spirituality and changed my life. And one of Maharaji's instructions is, well, the main line is, the best form to worship God is every form. And then to go further, he simply says, keep on looking for the good. Even when you see all the garbage, keep on looking for the good. And it's a great practice. People like being around you, too, because maybe you'll just see the good in them. That is a little byproduct, not that you want that for the, uh, for the main intention, but it feels good. And again, I'm not saying be naive, but, um, but open up to that possibility. There's a uh, a book, by the way, I'll just mention, uh, I've mentioned this before, some people who've been around me know about this book, um, How We Choose to Be Happy. Uh, it's in the bookstore from time to time, only it's hard to keep in stock. This is called The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People. And what these guys did, and they've come and taught at Spirit Rock with, with me uh, a number of times, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, uh, they went uh, for three years interviewing extremely happy people. It's a great gig. They go into a a town, say, in rural Alabama, right? They go into, and they went all over the country, North America and a little bit in Europe, and they'd go into, say, uh, the the diner, and uh, they'd say, um, they wouldn't know anyone in town, who's the happiest person in town? And the people there would say, Shirley, she's the happiest. You know. And then they go and, uh, and, 
and just check out Shirley, and they'd ask if they could uh, if they could interview some people who might know her from a different circle. Maybe they know another side of her, and then after they checked out her family or relatives, and they said, yep, Shirley's pretty happy. <laughs> then they'd have an in-depth interview with Shirley about uh, why she's so happy, what's her secret. Uh, and they did this um, for three years and interviewed over 300 people and came to the nine <laughs> common denominators of all of these people. It's a fabulous book, and uh, I recommend it highly. And um, and one of the, the, the things that I, um, uh, the reasons that I became so uh, enamored with the book is it was given to me, uh, my wife gave it to me on my, uh, my birthday about oh, f- five years ago. And, um, and I read it and it was just saying everything that I believe with all my heart to be so. And I decided, uh, and it just really brought that out in me, and I... Uh, went through about three months with my uh, group in Berkeley practicing because each of these principles is also a Buddhist principle. And so I translated the choices into Buddhist teachings. And uh, we were practicing it for three months and we all got happier and happier and happier. It was, <laughs> okay, I believe. You know? And that's why I continued actually and uh, started doing the joy groups. But the... The first choice that these folks make is the intention to be happy. Now, that's not something that many of us consciously contemplate, the intention to be happy. And if you're familiar with the Buddhist teachings, you know that all of karma is based on intention. If you have the intention to be happy, then you will do whatever it takes to truly be happy, not to get lost in what other people say will make you happy, but to really go for happiness, which is what the purpose of doing this, this path is about. But to consciously say, oh, I'm not about being successful. I'm not about being loved and accepted and okay, and maybe I'll pass the test. Maybe if everybody tells me how okay I am, how good I am, I'll start to believe it. It's to do what really makes you happy. And I'm not just talking about the quick, easy, simple pleasure. Although there is a place for that as well. I'm talking about a deeper quality of happiness. But the appreciation of the good is part of that happiness. There is a line between appreciation, a thin line between appreciation and grasping. So if you're eating a delicious peach, it's okay to savor it and to love it. The problem comes when you say, oh, it's gone, and I want another peach. Or maybe something else will do it a little bit more. No, you just taste it fully while it's here, and you appreciate the sunset, and you appreciate music, and you appreciate your blessings, and you appreciate the difficulties as well. 
It's not just going for the quick pleasure hit. But it's okay to appreciate life's blessings. This is one of the one of the main practices that we can do is that of gratitude. A very powerful way to open ourselves up to the good in life. Uh, there's a, a wonderful teacher. So I'm just realizing I'm not going to get to three quarters of my talk, but uh, this is it. Um, there's a wonderful teacher, uh, uh, Sokni Rinpoche. He's a Tibetan uh, teacher, and he says, gratitude, when we have appreciation and devotion to what is good in life, this opens us up. It's like opening up your satellite dish to receive all the goodness. And if you read the Discourse on Blessings, it's quite extraordinary how much there is to appreciate in our life. And it fills our heart. Actually, before I go on, I just want you to take a moment, okay? Close your eyes. And... Reflect on all the good things in your life, all the things that you're grateful for or the people that you're grateful to, all the blessings. You can go slowly and if you can, get a picture for each one and let yourself take it in viscerally. how it feels. How does that feel inside? Pretty good, huh? We forget. My, my wife, Jane, who I, I've been with for 24 years now, she has a gratitude practice that she does with a friend um, each night. She's been doing it for, oh, about three years now. Now she has two friends. Somebody else joined as well. And late at night, before she goes to bed, she emails, they email each other the things that they're grateful for in their life. I've reaped the benefits for that one. Every now and then I make it to the gratitude list, as she tells me. But she just, it has really transformed, whether or not I'm on the list, it's really transformed how she relates to life. And when we've done the joy groups, that's, that was a practice every night you write down a few things that you're grateful for. You're just inclining the mind in that way. And I would suggest, if, you have a, if you're in a kind of down uh, period, to do that. And you will see um, how it shifts. And I would really encourage you to write it down, not just, oh yeah, I got the idea. Write it down, think of it just like you just did now, and make a picture of it. Appreciation though, as I said, is not only about appreciating all the sweet, lovely things there are. It's appreciating the difficulties as well. Because until we come to terms with 
the difficulties, with the hard stuff, we're busy trying to avoid it. And right inside all of our difficulties are the, the gems that allow us to grow and deepen our wisdom, our compassion, our love of life and of who we are. Right in the middle of our fear, for instance, if we have ways to work with it, hold it wisely, practice, use it as practice, we get in touch with a strength that we didn't even know we had. And probably if you look back to the times where you faced your deepest, your darkest hour, you accessed accessed a courage and a wisdom that you didn't know was there. Is that so? One of my my heroes uh, mentioned last night at this gathering, uh, um, one of my heroes is this woman, Julia Butterfly Hill, this environmental activist who's very, very inspiring, who was up in the tree, Luna, for two years. And she went up uh, to prevent the cutting of the, of the tree in the redwoods. And she went up um, thinking she was going to be up for about two weeks. Well, And she didn't go up so well prepared. It turned out that she was up there for two years. And it also turned out that she went up uh, in the, happened to be the year of El Nino, the worst winter on record. And there were times in the first couple of, the first few months, first two months, where she was, she she write, she has a book, The Legacy of Luna, and she writes about it, and she's holding on for dear life not to get blown off the 180-foot little platform that she had. And each time she she got through it, she said, God, grant me the strength to meet this challenge. And you know what would happen? A worse storm than before. Much worse. She didn't think it could get any worse. Much worse. Oh, my God. And she's, she's praying, Oh, God, grant me the strength to get through this challenge. A worse storm than before. She said she did this about five times, and she's a very deeply spiritual person, until at one point she realized she kept on praying for more strength And God was heaping on another challenge, and she said, I never knew how strong I could be. And finally she said, okay, I think I got the idea. Right from facing our fears comes a deep courage. From opening up to the anger and the pettiness, we see with compassion the predicament that we can be stuck in. Right in the middle of our confusion and our bewilderment, we see a, 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 a way to understand that confusion. We see the possibility of not identifying with that confusion. So right in there are the deep sources of awakening and happiness. Take delight in the fact that you can meet those, not despair in the fact that they come. 
because we get a, a, a strength and a confidence through them. Then there are many other conscious ways to cultivate joy. And in fact, if you come to that singles evening, um, we'll be talking a lot more about this. So maybe this will, this will be where I'll finish the rest of the talk on that, that day. But there is a sense of wonder that we can bring. This is what mindfulness really is. When you look closely at life, wow, it's going on. If you've ever sat up, at the, up on the uh, upper part of the retreat and, and you slow down and you really get connected with life, there's this classic Vipassana stance where people look at life growing and saying, wow. Don't let that spirit of wonder die. It can't die. It might be hidden and obscured, but it's here right for us all to experience. This is Albert Einstein. The most beautiful and profound emotion is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. One to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. Let that investigation factor draw you closer. I remember on one retreat, where I all of a sudden opened up to a new level of relating to practice. And I went into an interview with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and I said, I don't know what I've been doing for the last five or six years, but this is a whole other ball game. It's amazing. And he said, oh yeah, I know that feeling. I said, really, you do? He says, yeah, I get it every time I do a retreat. You do? And then he looked, he leaned forward and he said, yeah, and you know what? It's like we're at the tip of the iceberg. And I still get shudders when I think of that. We're on the tip of the iceberg. Just how much more there is to learn, how much there is to wake up to. What a, what a fabulous mystery that we can awaken to. That gratitude and that sense of wonder leads to a a fullness that wants to express itself as generosity. And we allow ourselves to feel the goodness as as we let our strengths and our gifts flow out of us. It's a fabulous way to experience joy. And in fact, there's another wonderful book called Authentic Happiness um, by the the father of uh, positive psychology, Martin Seligman. And he says, true authentic happiness comes when we are allowing our natural gifts to express themselves. See what your gift is. Don't compare it with somebody else's and think, oh, well, I can't dance like they, they can, or I'm not as gifted a communicator as he is, or I, I'm not as... as fastidious or I'm sloppy, you know, I'm not like like her. See what your gifts are and let yourself express it. This is a beautiful quote. Maybe Jack has read it from uh, Martha Graham. There is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. 
It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. Besides these, I just have a few minutes left and there's a lot more um, I could say. I'll just mention a couple of other ways that this practice is about cultivating happiness and that you can consciously invoke that. There is, if, if this all sounds a bit airy-fairy for, for some, uh, some of the more um, um, different personality types, um, <laughs> there are joy, there's the joy that comes with restraint. There is a joy that comes with not being seduced by the next hit that will make you happy or that you think will make you happy. There's a joy that the Buddha talks of as the bliss of blamelessness, the joy that comes from living an ethical life, a life of integrity where you don't cause suffering, where you, you can stop yourself from doing things that will harm others or harm yourself. And the Buddha said, there's lots of kinds of happiness. There's a happiness of, of having all that you need, the happiness of being generous with others, the happiness of providing for your family. He said, there's also the bliss of blamelessness, the happiness that comes from a life of integrity. And compared to the bliss of blamelessness, those others aren't one-sixteenth as potent a source of joy and happiness. I don't know how he figured out that equation, but it's right there in the suttas, not one-sixteenth. And it points to the fact that when we are clean within ourselves, it brings a sense of wholeness and ease where we don't have to hide from anything. Then there's the joy of letting go, of being able to simplify our lives, what is often talked about as renunciation, but it's really about living simply. You know that feeling when you clean out your closet? Ah, how good it feels. Not, oh, what can I do to fill it up some more? We just get confused in thinking, oh, more is better, but space is great. And that ability to let go, you see, that is where the joy really comes from. There's the joy of connection, of interconnection, of relationship. The joy of seeing another person and letting another person in. That in itself, the art of intimacy, the art of revealing yourself and the art of seeing who that other person is in there. This is one of the great gifts of life. But that is different from attachment. The joy of loving kindness is not to be confused with the grasping of fear and need and, and, and want, thinking that the love is out there. The love we can awaken in each other is just the love that's in here to begin with. And so practice as relationship. There is the joy of what's called sympathetic joy, mudita, where you see the happiness around you. You see somebody else happy. And if you train yourself, you can incline the mind to practice that and see, oh, there's more happiness in the world. 
How wonderful. Not, oh, they've got it, so it's less for me. There's not a quota on happiness. If that were so, then there'd be a quota on, on anger, right? And somebody comes in a room, oh, they're stewing. You don't say, oh, great, they've got the anger, now I can be happier. You kind of pick up the vibes. Well, you can pick up the vibes of happiness too. Oh, there's a little bit more joy in the world. The, the Dalai Lama says, if you can train yourself to see happiness in others as a source of your own happiness, you increase your chances for well-being by six billion to one. <laughs> it's not just about me, it's about, oh, look at that. And then, of course, there's the joy of liberation, the deepest kind of happiness, where there's the sure heart's relief release, where you see through the wanting mind, and see it's all complete just as it is, including me. You are not excluded from that at all. And to see that you are, you are the Buddha, to get who you are, is a great gift that you give to everybody else in your life. Because then you're not busy hoping that they'll validate you. You come from a place of abundance where you know that what they're seeing is deeper than even your personality. You've got your gifts, but there's something deeper and you can let it shine through. And so to see more and more your true nature and to love this being is the greatest gift that we can offer because then we can love all the beings. We see there's no difference at all. So I hope you start seeing this path as a path that cultivates quite directly and consciously, if you allow it, deeper happiness and joy, and then let it shine through and share it with everybody in your world for the benefit of all beings. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 26, 2004. It is an offering of... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.